ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and direct us, help us to understand what you would want us to see from this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 20. We've been looking at the first half of this where Jeremiah has written a letter from God to the people, both in Jerusalem and in Babylon, encouraging them to, you know, to uh, get in for the long haul because they're going to be there for 70 years, build houses, marry, you know, build your dwellings, and the prophets that are speaking the lies are criticizing him. So this is where we were left off. Verse 20 says, Hear you therefore the word of the Lord, all you in, of the captivity, whom I have sent it from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, of Ahab, the son of Kilai, and Zedekiah, and the son of Mahasai, which prophesy lies, a lie unto you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. And of them shall be taken up a curse by all the captivity of Judah, which are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in fire. Because they have committed villainy in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them, even I know and am a witness, says the Lord. All right, so Jeremiah calls, out, calls these guys out because they are basically calling him a liar. And remember, we talked a lot about this last week, that there's a multitude of them and a, just one of him, and which makes it very hard to, to talk about. And we've all probably been there where we are in the minority talking for God, and everybody else is blathering all kinds of idiocy. <laughs> and it sounds good because there's so many of them. And they're going, what's wrong with you? You're, look at, listen to them. And this is what he's telling them. He goes, uh, listen to the word, all you of, capti of the captivity. So this is letter directly to Babylon now. You that are in captivity, listen. And it is God, it says, whom I have sent. God, this is God speaking, whom I have sent to, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is something that we always have to remember is that Jesus and God are in control of everything that happens to us. Whether we think it's good or bad, it would not happen if they did not allow it. This happened to Job. It happened to all the different people in the Bible. God allows what is considered bad to happen so that he is exalted. And that's all it comes down to. And these people were disobedient. And God's going to say, I'm going to be exalted in this long run. In 70 years, you're going back home. So they knew the length of their captivity. Now, they forget it when they're out there in it. But they're, they're told, 70 years, you're going to be captive. And he says, Thus saith the Lord the, of hosts, the God of Israel, of Ahab, the son of Kiliar, no, I'm not going to read those names again, and Zedekiah, which prophesy lie, a lie in my name, so these are two men, and the, the funny thing when you first read this is, when you read Ahab and Zedekiah, they're, they're the names of kings, and these aren't the kings. Zedekiah is the current king, but he's not talking about the king, he's talking about a prophet named Zedekiah. And this Ahab is not the Ahab that was killed 200 years earlier, he's another prophet. All right, so he's making reference to two prophets that are the big ones standing against him. All right, so Ahab and Zedekiah are prophets. They're kind of the leaders of the prophets. They stand against him. 
and God has a controversy with them because they are speaking lies and saying that God has given them the words. And God has a problem with them because the, he has not spoken this before them. And he says, I am going to give these two men into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and he shall slay them before your eyes. So these two men, and this is basically a prophecy at this point. God has given a prophecy and it's going to be tr found true. These guys have been giving lying words and the real prophet says, because of your lying words, you're going to be, you know, killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now then the next verse we end up finding out how they were killed. And then shall be taken a curse by all the captivity of Judah, which are in Babylon. So they would, they would become a byword, a curse word, a cursing. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in fire. In other words, they were burned to death. And this was a very popular way that the Babylonians killed people. It started all the way back at 18, uh, 18 BC with Hammurabi. He started saying that the best way to kill people were to burn them alive. All right. By 600 and Nebuchadnezzar's there, he's still killing people by fire because if you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't bow in the bow to the, this idol that I have created, we're going to put you in the fire. It was not an uncommon punishment for the Babylonians to burn people alive. Um, for the Middle Ages, toward the, or the Reformation, they were going back to burning people alive. They burned witches, you know, supposed witches, they burned heretics. They were already back to burning people alive. And it's a horrible way to die, and it's, you know, burned, burned at the stake, which has gone on for many, many decades after that, or maybe even centuries. And, you know, then we went to different things like hangings and, and things, but uh, the Romans were known for their crucifixion. They didn't burn people alive, they crucified them. And one of the things about this is each nation has had its way of executing people so that the maximum pain could be attributed. All right? And burning alive is a pretty vicious way to die. It, well, crucifixion probably was the worst because it was designed to cause extreme pain for a long time. At least with burning, you're only going to burn for a couple hours. Crucifixion... Well, I, you understand what I'm saying. The crucifixion for the Romans was something that was days of excruciating pain, knowing that at the end you were going to die anyway. So I'm not going to say that burning for just a couple hours was a good thing, but it was mercifully quick compared to the Romans' crucifixions. Beheading was a much faster way. If you're going to be picking, you, know, you would want to be beheaded probably, but... Uh, in our day, we electrocute, you know, and I guess electrocution is pretty fast compared, compared but it's, it is rather painful, which is why they stopped ex ex electrocutions in America. You know, hangings were fairly quick, as long as your neck snapped. <laughs> if you didn't, didn't snap, it was an excruciatingly long, pain, uh, painful death of dying by asphyxiation eventually. Uh, but most of them, they would drop you fast enough and hard enough that your neck, neck snapped and you didn't die of asphyxiation, you, you died of a broken neck. Uh, but this has been the case, and for the Babylonians, they like to roast people, cook them alive. And this is what he's saying, you know, these, these two men are going to be like a byword. You know, they're going to be one of the curses. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab. And so, 
and it says, whom the king of Babylon roasted in fire. Why? In verse 23, because they committed villainy in Israel. Disgrace, folly. All right? They took people away from God. And with his people, God is serious about keeping his name honored and not taking him away. So anytime somebody says, thus saith the Lord, they better be speaking for God. You know, if they are going to teach, they better be speaking for God and be correct. Otherwise, they are in, in this whole area of folly, folly and villainy but from God's perspective. And not only did they do that, but he says they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. So here's the priest committing adultery and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have com not commanded them. And then he says, even I know and am a witness, says the Lord. I know what they are doing. So in this, is he talking about the two guys or is he talking about all the people? He's specifically talking about these two guys in this prophecy. But it was happening with a lot of the people because remember, they're worshiping multiple gods. And for most of the idol worship, especially if they were fertility gods and goddesses, your worship involved... Orgy, or at least with one other person, you know, but usually an orgy. Fornication. Uh, definitely fornication, adultery, buy the pro, you know, pay, pay a, pro, a temple prostitute. So they're worshiping other gods, and he specifically said other, others' wives. So they were probably just saying, well, that's how they worship. We're going to bring it into our worship. And uh, Samuel's sons had the same problem went way back before the king was called because they were sleeping with the women coming to offer the sacrifices and cheating them out of their sacrifices. And it's not an uncommon thing. It's not an uncommon thing. Yeah, they were taking the best cuts of meat that belonged to God and sleeping with the women. I, I'm a priest, you know, I'm going to take what I want, do what I want. Uh, in the book of Ezra, uh, Ezekiel, God shows him a vision. He breaks through the walls of the temple and God shows him the pornography in the minds of the priest and what's going on. And he sees horrible things going on and act activities in the, in the center of the temple. It was very much in the same line, sleeping with the women, sleeping with, you know, committing adultery, uh, wanting to do all the evils. Even if they didn't want to do it, God showed him what they were actually <laughs> thinking about. So yes, all of that goes on, and he says they've committed adultery with their wives, they have spoken lies, they have uh, done disgraceful, folly things, and it goes, God, God says, I know. I see what's going on. I am their witness. And this is very important for us always to understand. God sees everything <laughs> that's going on. And I've had people go, this is a terrible thought, especially for Christians, that God is seeing everything. Yes, God sees everything. He's with you all the time. And this is why everything we do must be in a holy manner because anything that we're doing, God is brought into the middle of, including our sins. We're bringing God into the middle of our sins and he sees it because he's there and he's in us. So when we're sinning as Christians, it's even worse. We're bringing God into a participant in our sin in, in a small, small way. Not, not in actuality, but we're bringing him into whatever we're doing wrong. 
And this is why it's so important to really understand the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere. And there's a lot of people that have problems with that idea that God is with me when I have relationship with my bride. You know, it's, you know, and I understand that. It is kind of a scary thought on one side. But do I really believe that he's omnipresent? If I do, he's there. He's there if I don't do it the right way. You know, he is there all the time and he knows all things. And this is what he said, I am the witness against you. And when people stand at the white throne judgment, they're not going to have an excuse because God's going to say, I was there, I saw it. You can say what you want about it, but I saw it and even more, I knew what you were thinking when you were doing it. You weren't doing it for the right reasons or anything and I knew that as well. And we can, you know, people make all kinds of excuses. Well, I'm, I'm committing adultery because I haven't had a relationship with my partner in a long time, so now I'm committing adultery because I need it. And God says, I don't care. I didn't give you that much freedom. And so it's a very important place to be, to know that God knows everything, and he's the witness against us when we do wrong. Now, when we're under the blood of Christ, we, we ask for repentance and forgiveness. It's under the blood there, and it's forgiven. Still may be consequences, <laughs> but it'll be forgiven because it's under the blood of Christ. And be forgiven because he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And that is not for our heavenly replace because we're under the blood, we're going to heaven when we've accepted Jesus Christ, but it's for our fellowship. When we confess our sin and say, God, this was a sin, God says, all right, you agree with me? Covered. You're forgiven. If we don't ask for that forgiveness and we're a Christian, we're going to go to heaven, but we're going to suffer. And if you've ever been there, you know what it's like to know that you're supposed to confess something and not want to confess it. Uh, maybe you don't think God knows about it, and if you don't confess it, he won't know about it, or whatever the reason might be. David, after his relationship with Bathsheba, went out of fellowship with God for, the, for that over a year to almost two years when that first baby was born. He did not turn to God. It took Nathan calling him out for him to come to repentance and feel good because when you're not in repentant heart, where's the last thing you want to do? Be in God's word, be in fellowship with, with his people, be in fellowship with God in general because it just makes you guilty because you know that you're not where you're supposed to be. And this is the problem. This is why confessing our sins is so important. Not to a priest, not to a pastor, but to God. And if you have a confident in something that you have a real bad problem in, share with them and say, I need your prayer. I need you to hold me accountable and let them help you <laughs> stay accountable for God. And this is something that's very important for, for people to have is just somebody that they know that they can trust. You know, this is my problem area. I need you to hold me accountable because I struggle in this area. And been there, had those people in my life. Uh, and it's a great place to be. It's scary sometimes when you know you're not where you're supposed to be and it's time to meet with them because you know the first words are going to their mouth are going, how are you doing in this area? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, uh, do I tell you the truth or do I lie? <laughs> you know, and hopefully you, you trust them enough to tell the truth. Uh, but, and you know that they're not going to judge you. But God says, I am the witness against you because of all of this. And he's basically talking about all the people at that last statement, but specifically those two that the prophecy's about. Verse 24, Thus shall you say, uh, speak to Shemaiah, 
the Nephilimite, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of, of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Because you have sent letters in my name unto all the people that are at Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord hath made you priest in the stead of Je Jehoiada the priest, that you should be officers in the house of the Lord for every man that is mad and makes himself a prophet, that you should put him in the prison and in stocks. Now, therefore, why have you not reproved Jeremiah of Anathoth, which makes himself a prophet to you? For we'll stop there. <laughs> All right, so here we have another person responding back. All right, uh, or he's, he's speaking to Jeremiah, speaking of Shemaiah. Shemaiah is a false prophet in Babylon because he sends a letter from Babylon. Most people believe that he, and from, from what he says, it sounds like he's one of the leaders that went to Babylon. All right, one of the leaders of the priest or prophets that went to Babylon, but he's not speaking for God. So God didn't make him a leader. He made himself a leader or the people made him a leader. And he says, Thus, say, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Because you have sent letters in my name calling all the people that are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah the son, the son of my the priest, and to all the priests saying. So he goes, you wrote a letter to all the leaders, to all the people, but specifically these leaders in the church. This Zephaniah is the second priest. He is the, the second, you know, he's second in line from the high priest. So something happens to the high priest, he would be the one that would be put into the high priest role. All right, so he's sending them to the most important people, and then not only to him, but to all the priests. You all listen. And it says, The Lord hath made you, a, and this is what he said this in his letter, The Lord hath made you a priest in the, stead of, in the stead of Jehoiada, the priest, that you should be officials in the house of the Lord for every man that is mad or crazy and makes himself a prophet that you should put him in the prison or in stocks. So his letter to them is, You are now the priests, after the order of Jehoiada. Now, I don't remember if you all remember who Jehoiada is, but Jehoiada was the high priest in the days of Josiah. When Athaniah came, came into power after her husband was killed, she killed all of the seed of Abraham except Josiah, which was hidden by Jehoiada. So Jehoiada is the last priest to the good king. And he puts jo uh, Josiah in power, uh, gets him called for, for being the king, and he was going to be in there. This happened, and Jehoiada was in power somewhere between 56 AD when Josiah became king to about 24, uh, uh, 24 years later. So somewhere between 24 and 56 years before this event is when Jehoiada was in power as high priest. All right, so he's going, you guys are replacing the last really good priest. All right, why they don't use anybody else, I have no idea, but he says, this was the last really good priest and, you're, and you're, uh, you've replaced him. You're in his, in other words, you're saying, we don't know all these other, you know, necessarily bad priests, but you are, you are a good priest. You're, you're one of the good priests. You, know, you replaced a good priest, you should be one of the good priests. And his statement on them is, uh, you know, for every man that is crazy and makes himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison or in the stocks. All right? 
very clearly speaking of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a crazy man saying that he is priest, a prophet rather. Why are you putting up with him? Why isn't he in prison or, or, and or the stocks? Why are you putting up with this crazy man claiming to be a prophet of God, telling you all the things that were opposite of what we're telling you? Mostly because of the power of God and the protection of God. But he, you know, he's, this is where he's at. Basically saying, if I was still back there, Jeremiah wouldn't be speaking like this. He would be put into prison and nobody would be listening to him because we'd put him in the stocks and nobody's going to listen to him because we'd, we'd be pointing out that he's crazy. This is boiled down to what he's telling us, what his words said. All right. And then he says, Now therefore, why have you not reproved Jeremiah? which makes himself a prophet to you. All right? And so he's saying, you're, you're, you are supposed to be the high priest back there. Why are you putting up with this heretic from their perspective? He's not saying what God says because all of us are speaking for God and we're all saying that you're not going to the captivity and, and God is going to return us. He's going to return the stuff. And this fool is telling you that it's going to be 70 years and get, and get prepared for the long haul. He obviously is different because we are right. The majority rules. And it's not uncommon for the people to believe in the majority. And I've said this before. One of the problems I do have with democratic systems is the majority in history, in the Bible, everywhere, is quite often wrong. Quite often wrong. And we've seen it in Jeremiah's day. The, the, the majority is wrong. They all are saying we're going to be, we're not going to captivity. We're coming back. Uh, God would never destroy his city. He would never put his people into captivity. So Jeremiah obviously doesn't know what he's talking about because God would never do that. Well, he's already done it to the northern kingdom. So why wouldn't he do it to the southern kingdom? But they're making up this story, trying to get them to believe them and go against Jeremiah. And one of the things I have learned over the years is I listen to the minority probably a lot more than I do to the majority because I've very rarely seen the majority make good, godly decisions. And, you know, and it's just a problem, and it's, we see it all through the scriptures. Majority does not make decisions for God. They make decisions based on what is good for me. All right. And our founding fathers in America understood that. That's why they built the government system that they built, which has been destroyed. All right? The Senate was supposed to be the representative of the states. They were selected by the states, not the people, so they would represent the state and not the people. And over years, we decided that we were going to properly elect our Senate, which means they no longer represent the state, they represent the people, and have to do what's good for the people to get back into, into their position. And the founding fathers already knew that that was a problem. That's why they, didn't, that's why they only gave the people representing the states two-year two -year terms. You know, we want to replace them because they're going to be foolish and not do what's right, and maybe the people will get smart and put people in there that actually want what's best for the country. But over and over again, we see majorities not doing what's good for the country, for God, they do what is going to please people. And because we are sinners and evil at heart, what we, come, what we want for ourselves is whatever is best for us or whatever we think is best for us. 
which usually isn't what's best for us anyway, <laughs> but it's what we think is best for us at the moment, and we find out, you know, 10 years later, boy, that was a dumb thing that I wanted, and especially when we get it, all right? Um, so this man is telling him, why aren't you getting rid of this crazy man who's calling himself a prophet? Verse 28, so for therefore he sent unto us in Babylon saying, this captivity is long, build you houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit. And Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the ears of Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, so I should have read two more verses because that's the end of the paragraph. So he's saying, you know, this crazy man is telling, you know, we've been telling you all that it's going to be short, we're all coming back. And he's telling you, get in ready for the long haul, build your houses, take wives, build businesses. And... Zephaniah read this so that Jeremiah could hear it. Kind of a nice thing, actually. You know, this, is what the, this is what the leader back there in, Jer in Babylon saying, that we should be getting, getting you and putting you in prison. Well, the problem is they often did put him in prison. They often did put him in cisterns. They put him in stocks. This is nothing new to Jeremiah to have this happen. But the head prophet in Babylon saying, why are you doing this? Why are you letting him speak? Words against what we're saying. And I find it very interesting that when somebody is lying, they're always afraid of somebody who doesn't say what they say. Always. And they want to destroy the person who is saying something different instead of just speaking the truth. One thing that's very important is the truth is never afraid of a lie. But a lie is always afraid of truth. And this is something that when I was going to Christian, Christian high school, we learned a lot about evolution. Not from the fact that it was true, but we learned all of what they would say and how they answered it because we knew we were being taught the truth about creationism and God's work and his handiwork. So we would then go, here is the lie that they're telling you and here's why it's a lie. And we could be able to battle against what the lies were. And it's very important for us to know truth and know that truth will stand up against a lie. And the statement that the truth always wins out is a very true statement. Eventually, truth comes out. Always. I've never seen it not come out. Sometimes it takes a long time to come out. But truth eventually always comes out. And we're seeing this even in the evolution debate because evolution is getting so many holes poked into it that they're struggling to find anything else to that would not be creation. All right, because that's the only other one. There's only the two options right now. And now they're really trying to do crazy things like believe that we were planted here by aliens and somewhere there's a world out there where science does not apply and evolution happened and, they, and then we were planted here and had... An evolution because that's how life started and and we evolved into what we are from that life that's planted and they're doing all kinds of crazy statements um, but truth always wins out in the long run and this is why it's so important for us as christians we just speak the truth we have answers to all man's problems they may not like to hear our answers why is everything in the world so bad adam and eve sinned and brought sin, sin into the world and there was a curse in the world because of it well, I don't like that answer. Well, I don't care if you like that answer or not. That we gave you a much better answer than what you can come up with because if you don't believe in God, there is absolutely no reason to judge something as good or bad. If we're just a bunch of evolved creatures, there is no reason to have a good or bad anything because 
if, if the survival of the fittest is true, then if I'm strong enough to impose my will on you, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you may not like what I do. I, you know, I'm Hitler and I, you know, put the world under my control and kill off millions of people. As long as I'm strong enough to make that last, then I'm right. There's no way to say it was wrong. Yeah. And that is the evolutionary point of view. It's not God's point of view. But eventually, truth wins out. It may take decades in some cases. But truth wins or in the case of evolution, taking almost 150 years. <laughs> but truth is winning out and really starting to poke holes in it. And people are understanding that it's falling apart, which is why they're struggling to come up with any other answers. And, but truth always wins. And this is what, he's, this, is what this prophet is saying. Uh, Shemia, he's saying, you know, shut him up. We can't let him be talking. Jeremiah was oftentimes accused of being a treasonous prophet because he says, we're going into captivity. Now, if you're the king trying to get your people encouraged to fight, you don't want a prophet telling you to surrender you know, because you're going into captivity. And he was charged with treason on mo more than one occasion. You're a treasonous dog ruining the morale of the people and thrown into prison because of his word from God that, you know, just surrender and you'll keep your kingdom king. Yeah. Uh, surrender people and many of you won't have to die. And we'll get to stay in our land if you will just bow your head and neck to Nebuchadnezzar. But to any prophets telling them otherwise. And they were having itchy ears. They heard what they wanted to hear and they were happy to hear what they heard. You know, uh, we're not going to captivity. These other, these other prophets are saying, we're not going to captivity. He's telling us we're going to captivity. And it's going to be long enough that we should go settle in for the long haul. We don't want that. We, we like Jerusalem. We like our temple. We like, these, we like what we're, all the gods that we're worshiping here in Judah instead of <laughs> in Jerusalem instead of God. And, you know, and Jeremiah's telling them, go. And, this, and Shemaiah's saying, why are you putting up with this man who's destroying the morale and saying opposite things. We have all gotten together. We're all saying the same thing and he is not agreeing with us. There's something wrong with him. And this happens a lot. And this is why I'm always scared when I hear people judging other pastors, other leaders and stuff. Number one, I don't know if that person... Now, if it's anti-biblical, then I know that God wasn't talking to them. But if it's not something that's against the Bible, I don't know what's going on. Now, I know there are certain people out there that I won't listen to. And because I don't listen to them, I can't criticize them because I don't listen to them know exactly what they say. I know what little I've heard of them is something I don't want to deal with. And they may be just as bad as others have come out and attacking them about. But I want to be very careful. I don't want to touch somebody that God has put into place. Touch not the anointed of God. David would not go out and kill Saul even though Saul had completely fallen from grace. Because David's attitude was, maybe he'll repent and be put back into his authority. And I'm not going to touch what God put in place. And I don't know for sure whether some of these people were actually put in place by God or if they did it all on themselves, but I don't want to take any chances. God, deal with them. If there's, if there's righteous people in their midst, deal with them and bring them out. And I've said this many times, if there's a pastor who's not following God, God will move the godly people out. 
They don't have to attack that man. I don't have to attack that man. God will speak to the people saying, he's not teaching God's word. I'm going to, I'm going to go find some place where I can learn God's word. And God will deal with it. Before long, they'll have either a whole building full of people that aren't, un, that aren't godly, just as bad as they are, and God will take care of it. He's very capable. God does not need us to defend him. Now, doesn't mean that I'm not going to say what's true and all of that, but I'm not out there to sit there and argue. There is no place in the Bible where you'll see God saying, I am God, you must believe in me. The first word of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We don't see a definition of God before that. We might think, well, God should say, well, I'm the, I'm the ever-existing one that uh, created all things and I'm before all things and everything, but there's just a presumption in the Bible that God is, is and that he is God. Now we get, learn about, about him in various places and we can put together a huge picture of God, but we have to go through the whole scripture to do so. But the Bible just starts out, in the beginning was God. Okay, who's God? Well, he created the heavens and earth. That's about all you needed to know in, in verse 1. He created the beginning. He was, be, he was there before anything happened. And so we find out that he's pre-existing. He has the power to create the heavens and the earth. But there's no place in there that defines this is God. No place in there that says he's the all-powerful one that was before time and all that. We have to read into and say, oh, there's a God before everything started. So therefore he pre-exists all of creation and he's very powerful because he created all of creation and that's about all we know from that verse but that's a lot to know from that verse and it's not in there and nowhere in there to say this is my definition of God we have to take the whole of scripture to really get a definition of God and he starts fleshing out who he is over all the scripture and so this is very important for us to understand Right, verse 30, then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Send all them in captivity, saying, Thus saith the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nephilimite, because that Shemaiah hath prophesied unto you, and I have sent him not, and he has caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah the Nephilimite and his seed. He shall not have a man to dwell among his people. Neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he hath taught rebellion against the Lord. So Jeremiah has taken this letter and he's responding. It was read in his ears and this is what God told him to say. Tell the people this. All right. Send to them that are in captivity, thus saith the Lord concerning Shemaiah, who has prophesied unto you. All right. So he's, he thinks he's a hotshot prophet. All right, he's prophesying to you. And it says, and I sent him not. God is saying, I did not send him. I did not give him word. I did not tell him what to say. This is, again, you've got to picture this battle. You've got Jeremiah, dozens of priests in Jerusalem and prophets in Jerusalem contradicting him. Now he's got this group of prophets in Babylon and priests contradicting him. And it's one man against maybe 50 or more people saying things that aren't his. And what's he say? God says he didn't send you. How would you like to be the one man telling everybody else 
Uh, I know there's a majority up there, but God did not send the one that's been pretending to speak for him. And they're all looking at go, you're only one man, why should we believe you? And we see here, as he's given little hints, little prophecies. Zedekiah and Ahab are going to be burned. All he had to do was wait a couple years to see Ahab and Zedekiah being burned. Oh, he said that, and so it is. Now, after, after a few decades, they're going to realize that Jeremiah was true. Oh, he said we're going to be here 70 years. These guys said we weren't going to be there at all. Jerusalem's been wiped out. I think Jeremiah was right. Now, we didn't really pay any attention to him at the time, but we think that he was right. And slowly, people would start getting to the idea that, oh, all of them were wrong. He's right. But when he's speaking it, he's a lonely voice that nobody's really listening to. God has always had a remnant of people to f- obey and follow him. Always. We saw it even during the Reformation in the Dark Ages when the Catholic Church was reigning very strong and, and not following God in the midst of everything. There was a small remnant of people that held on to the word of God and preached the word of God and, and brought Christ up. Then we had the Reformation. And if you don't, you know, one thing about the Reformation, we, it was a wonderful thing. All right? There was a lot of good. But all those great Reformation leaders kept attacking each other. First, they started attacking the, the, the Catholic Church. And when they got broken up from them, they started attacking each other. Well, this one doesn't have this right doctrine. This one doesn't have this right doctrine. Oh, you believe in this one. We're going to burn you at the stake. And you know, they, were, they, were cru- they were as cruel to each other as the Catholic Church had been to them. Because they were so zealous about what they believed. And it's been a problem all along for the church for people to attack those who don't believe exactly like they do. Jeremiah is saying, those guys don't know what they're talking about. They may be united, but they're not right. God did not send them. And he says, uh, he has caused you to trust or be secure in a lie or a falsehood, a deception. Implication is that he knew it was a lie and a deception. All right? Because you... You could tell something that's not true and believe it, but, and you don't really think it's a lie. All right? And you may honestly believe it. It's still a lie you know, or a deception, but you, you know, there's no malice behind it. All right? Well, I really didn't think that that was true, but, and this is what people have said over and over again, you'll never die for a lie. But you'll die for anything that you believe is true, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. If you believe it's true, you'd be willing to die for it. And then we apply that to the apostles who said that Jesus rose from the dead. They all died horrible deaths. They would not have died those horrible deaths for something that they knew was a lie. They saw Jesus and knew what they were talking about. Uh, now we have many Muslims who will die for Muhammad. We'll have many you know, people from all the other religions that will die for their belief system because they truly believe it. But they're all so far away that they can believe a lie without knowing that it's a lie. And so here, Jeremiah is telling them, you are put trust in the lie of this man. And this is the really bad problem for leaders. When we lead people astray, there's a great requirement on us that we have led somebody astray without following God. And this is why God says it's a greater judgment on those that are, that are teachers or masters in, in, in James because we do impact people's lives. Now, again, I've said this over and over. Just because somebody leads you down the path does not relieve you of the, 
of the responsibility to of the responsibility to have checked out what they're saying. When you stand before God, having followed the wrong way, you can well, you know, uh, uh, Pastor so and so told me this, and I just believed it without thinking, and so this is why I, I followed the wrong thing. God goes, no, you still have to be a good Berean. You should have been in the Word of God, checking it out. But to that pastor, he's going to say, you were really messed up. Now you're going to have to pay pay twice. You were, you were wrong and you led others astray. So there's a great responsibility but doesn't relieve the other person of their responsibility to have checked things out. All right, so when somebody gets involved in a cult, the cult leader gets a really big responsibility before God, but that does not free up the people that they led astray <laughs> uh, from it. He goes, therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah and his seed. So Shemaiah and his family, probably his family was older at that point and should have known what was going on and, and told him, hey, dad, you know, you, you know, this isn't it. Because God never punishes the family incorrectly. All right. Uh, there's always those that should have been able to say, you know, you're, this is not right. And it says, you shall not have a man to dwell among this people. In other words, your entire progeny is going to be destroyed. Now, that is a, even in our day, it's a pretty serious thing to lose your line. You know, not as bad as it used to be because we're not quite as, quite there. But, you know, this was a big deal. I'm not going to have a son to carry on my name. I'm not going to have a son to take over my property. I'm not going to have a son to pass my inheritance to. And God's saying, you're not going to have any children. Your name is dying here. Your line is going to be over. And neither uh, a man to dwell with his people, neither shall you behold the good which I will do for my people. Now this has a dual meaning to it because the obvious good is 70 years later they're going to come back into the land of Israel. But I want to just point out something else about this good that I was thinking about. All the blessings God gives us even in times when we don't think we're being blessed. All right? They're going to be in Babylon. What, what are just a few of the things that happen in Babylon? Well, Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say to him? Let all the people worship the God of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow before the, before the idol. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. And what's he say when they come out? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let everybody worship their God. He makes his bold statement, you know, saying, look at this is Babylon that I have created. And he gets cursed to, to think like an animal for a, for a year. Comes back and says, I now understand God. Would he have ever done any of that stuff to worship God if the Jews weren't in his kingdom? And during those times when he says, worship the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, you worship the God of, of the Hebrews, they're going to benefit. Because people are going to go to them, like, we need to find out about your God because the king just said, we're supposed to worship your God. Tell us about your God. They get to be evangelists. And they don't understand there's a lot of good in what's going on. Cyrus comes up and Daniel starts speaking to him and he starts making d decisions for God. What blessings, little blessings all over that 70 years of time when people are worshiping God and not following after the world because of the little statements here and there that are coming out. God blesses people through the presence of his people. And we get blessed by being that blessing for them. 
And even when we're in the midst of hard times, there's a great opportunity to be able to be a light for God. And sometimes I can remember that the hardest times I go through are the times that I'm shining for God the most, even though I don't recognize it because I'm just trying to stay faithful for him. And people get to see it. And we look at it going, man, that was a miserable hard time. But, you know, I didn't fall away. I didn't go crazy. I followed God. And, and then we find out that people were watching us. People were looking at it and saying, wow, I need the strength that they had. You know, and we're going, man, God, it was a miserable experience. But, you know, it's, they're looking at it going, they didn't fall apart. They didn't, they didn't crumble under the weight of all these trials. I would have been a basket case. I would have been on drugs. I would have been, you know, drinking myself, you know, silly, whatever, the, whatever their favorite way of escaping reality is. And they're looking at us saying, they didn't fall apart. God is in the midst of all of this. He says, this man will not see the good. He's not, because I think he's too old to come back anyway after 70 years. So I don't really believe that God was talking about, he's not going to live to see. Now his sons, yeah, they're not going to live to see it either. But I do believe he's saying, you're not going to see any of my hand work. You're not going to see any of the blessings that I have for you. And God's blessings are all around us when we open our eyes and see it. And he says, you're not going to see any of the good. You know? And I know the primary one was the return to Israel. But Shemaiah wasn't going to see it anyway. You know, even, even if he was only 20 or 30 years old, I mean, he'd have to live to be 90 to 100 years old to be able to see the people return to Jerusalem. So I don't believe that God was primarily referring to the, about the return to Jerusalem. I think he was really saying, he's not going to see my hand of mercy, my hand of grace, my hand of blessing upon him and the people. Because what ends up happening while they're in captivity, they build businesses, and the Jews, for some reason, because of the blessings of God, get blessed in business. They get blessed in reaching out to people because God is keeping them, and God is giving them blessings, and, which is why they keep getting accused of, you know, being charlatans and everything, and they're not, the, you know, they, they're not perfectly clean hands either, but God does bless them. And we've probably heard it yourself. When everything's going good for you, well, there must be something wrong with you. How, how come you're doing so good? How come you have all these good things? Well, God is blessing. Yeah, all right. So you're doing something. We don't know about it, but you're, you're doing something. Uh, and all we can do is say, God's on, God's on my side because I'm one of his children. But over and over, the Jews during the Middle Ages, during the Black Plague, were accused of being witches causing other people's death only because they obeyed God's sanita sanitation laws. And they got rid of anything that rats crawled on and, and got rid of the rats in their houses and everything and wouldn't eat off the plates that the rats crawled on or wouldn't eat the food out of the bags that the rats crawl, you know, ate out of. And so they stayed relatively healthy and without the Black Plague, while others got the... You know, got the disease and it was all the Jews' fault because they weren't getting sick, we are, so it's got to be them. It wasn't what they did, <laughs> it was them. And this is one of the things that people will do to us. There must be something wrong with you. You're causing this somehow. We don't know quite how you're causing this, but you're causing this, so we're going to go after you because, you know, you're being blessed by God, but we're not going to recognize you're being blessed by God because there's something wrong with you. You are causing this. And he says, you're not going to see this, uh, the good that I will do for my people. And then again, he goes, because you have taught rebellion or literally apostasy. You're rejecting God completely. 
against the Lord. And apostasy is a strong word. All right, it means you're turning away from God. You're not believing anything that he says. And he goes, you are teaching apostasy uh, or rebellion. And so therefore, you are going to have all these problems come your way. It is a serious thing to turn away from God, especially if you've been his or think that you've been his. You, know, you can't lose your salvation, but you can make people think that you were saved and turn away from all of what you said you believed. And we thought many people that that's happened to over the years. They get discouraged, just, you know, they never made their com total commitment to God. And it's very interesting that some people have done mighty things. I can't remember whether it was George or John uh, Wesley, but one of them was not even a Christian during all their first crusades when they were leading people to the Lord. It wasn't until he was on a boat trip to England that he realized, I don't know God. And finally got saved. Because he goes, I don't know about the God that we've been telling everybody about. And he finally got saved. I can't remember which of the two brothers it was. But, and it's not uncommon for that to be the case. People who are charismatic can do a lot of good things, apparently, for God. But not for God because God wasn't in it. Doesn't mean that what they did is not going to be used by God. For all things work together for good. If I go and tell people the good news and I don't believe in the good news, but I do it really well and people respond, they get saved. I'm still not saved. But I can still give the message. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. And this is why it's so important to know that I have made God my Lord as well as my Savior. Because he needs to be both. He is not just Savior. He says, Confess that Jesus is Lord and you shall be saved. And I look and go, and God, I want to make you Lord. And we'll have a hard time making him Lord. And that's beside the point. <laughs> but I have said I'm going to make him Lord and we watch what he does to reach down to us to help us. Because he will help us make Lord. And if we don't do it voluntarily, he'll help us do it. You know, he'll put us in situations where we must do it. You know, God, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I need help. He goes, oh, okay, are you ready to make me Lord and I'll get you out of this? And the one thing I have noted over my lifetime, it is an amazing thing that God can make life pure hell for a while when you're rejecting him. And as soon as you say, God, I need your help and we mean it, he comes in and he twists the whole thing around and makes it good. And I've seen this happen. I've told you all at one time I fought God for six years, fought God for six years. I finally said, I give up, and God fixed it within a month. Or maybe two months, but it was virtually instant, six years, and then, you know, even if it was three or four months, it was still <laughs> very instantaneous after six years. And everything just was turned around because I finally said, I want to do it your way and not fight you anymore. And this is very important. As soon as we surrender to God, he can fix things. And he does it so fast, so quickly, they're going, why did I ever fight in the first place? And this is the one thing I am learning so much over the years. Every time I fight God, life is miserable. And he wins anyway. So I might as well just surrender early and get it over with. But I'm just like everybody else. I'm proud and arrogant, and I'm, elite, I'm a, a manager, a program, you know, an organizer, I'm going, I can, I can get myself out of this. I don't need God's help. And every time God has shown me that I need his help. So 
I have mostly learned <laughs> to just surrender to him quickly. Not perfect at it, but really getting better at just saying, God, I surrender. It's not worth the battle. And I can just encourage people, learn from my mistakes and do it, do it the right way from the, from the beginning. Because if you want to learn the hard way, you'll find out that God wins. And he can make your life totally miserable if you don't follow his, <laughs> his will. So just learn to surrender. And don't fight and have to get really disciplined. Lord, we ask you to bless us as we go about your business. Help us to be godly people that seek after you in all that, that we do. Help us to be comfortable being in the minority for you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.